0: Good
1: morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to The Politics Guys with your hosts, Jay Parson and Michael Baranowski.
0: Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is UC Berkeley economist Brad DeLong, who served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury in the Clinton administration. Now, in addition to authoring many highly regarded academic articles, Professor DeLong is an extremely active and engaging blogger. His Grasping Reality with All Tentacles blog is an amazing source of must-read articles and trenchant analysis, and I highly recommend it. Professor DeLong, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: You know, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about your background and your work and, and I'm wondering what drew you to economics as a profession and, and what issues or problems in economics do you find particularly interesting?
1: Well, um, I suppose first, my best friend from second grade on through high school, his father was an economist, and you know my father wasn't a lawyer, and so he became a lawyer and I became an economist. I suppose each of us seeing the other one's father as someone who was doing an excellent and interesting job, and yet neither of us being close up enough to see the the warts and the scenes. Um, and so <clears throat> that switch has always struck me as interesting. Um, there was also... Um, an American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in the early 1970s, where they had a computer on which they had, I think, Forrester's World Dynamics um, Global Ecological Macro Model up and running, and you could play with it. And so I played with it, trying out various scenarios for like 14 hours over two days, um, and then I was kind of hooked. Um, there were questions about whether I'd wind up being, you know, whether one wants to go for the natural sciences or the social sciences. Um, and I found both absolutely fascinating. And simply somehow wound up, um, say, in economics, um, because I also found I really liked history a huge amount. And it was much easier to make a um, living as an economist studying history than as a straight historian or as a historian studying economists um, economics.
0: And so currently, what are the, what are the issues or problems that, that you find you know, uh, are particularly of interest or fascinating to you these days?
1: Well, the big one is the extraordinary rise in inequality in the global north and especially in the United States. We've seen since 1980 or so that nobody back in 1980 predicted that this would happen. Everyone back in 1980 thought we had kind of settled into a world of social democracy with a relatively egalitarian income distribution that the... Extreme income inequality of the Gilded Age was the combination of a product of a landed aristocracy on the decay. The particular massive opportunities opened up by the second industrial revolution and by the mass movement of populations off the farm and into the cities, plus the underdevelopment of political democracy. Um, Those were all gone. And so we thought that the Gilded Age of the 19 from 1890 to 1930 or so had been succeeded by a much more social democratic mixed economy welfare state age. And that was going to be permanent. And that has turned out not to be Um, right now. America is a lot more equal on a race perspective, on a gender perspective than it was in, say, 1890 or so, um, let alone, God, 1860. But we're more unequal economically than we've ever been. You know, our richer are richer relative to the middle class than they've ever been before. And, you know, also our poor are poorer relative to their ability to command material resources with their wallets um, compared to the middle class than they've ever been before. Uh, but there are big questions about you know, how one how important relative poverty is as opposed to absolute dire poverty in the United States today. The poor are poor, but they're not among the two point seven billion people in the world who are still living on less than a dollar fifty a day and who have lives that are very much like those of our pre industrial ancestors, plus they have occasional access to cell phones
0: yeah. You know, I was wondering, you know, there are a few people like, for instance, Tyler Cohen and, and Martin Ford, and they argue that uh, basically that advances in technology mean, in Tyler's uh, phrase, average is over and that we're likely to become even more and more unequal as uh, automation and algorithms eliminate uh, an increasing number of middle-class jobs. And I'm wondering if you agree with that assessment.
1: Um, no. I think it is much, 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 much too simple Um, that we could have a relatively egalitarian society with lots of potential for upward mobility and something like real equality of opportunity and relatively minor kind of wealth differences any time we collectively chose that we wanted to have such a society. And all the evidence over the past 150 years is that we could do that without sacrificing anything in the way of economic growth as long as we preserve the market economy, mixed economy framework. That is that people who've always said that in the United States that if only we made the income and wealth distribution more unequal, we'd get faster economic growth. There's no evidence that attempts to do that have ever worked. People who say that economic growth is being significantly held back by income inequality. There's some evidence that was true for the post-Civil War Jim Crow South and some evidence that was true or more evidence that was true for the pre-Civil War slave South. But that's the only place in America where higher inequality appears to have been associated with lower growth, Um, growth seems to be determined by other things um, than by whether you're redistributing income from rich to poor um, or whether you're incentivizing the rich by giving them extra property rights and extra low taxes. Um, So it's something we could choose if we wanted to. um, Our institutions and our arrangement of property is by no means set in stone. The question of whether the natural operation of our system will produce greater and greater inequality as time goes on, um, that's a very interesting one. Thomas Piketty is on the same side of Tyler Cohen as this, but that's also something that has its huge can of worms. There's the question of your market income. There's the question of how much your market income really matters. Um, For that back in the Middle Ages or even in 1890, you know, um, to be poor was to be so ill housed that you were often wet, so badly clothed that you were often shivering, so badly nourished that you were always hungry um, and not infrequently on the point of starving to death or women too skinny to ovulate regularly, children with immune systems too compromised by malnutrition to fight off the common cold. And as you go up the Maslow hierarchy of needs, we start out by simply wanting enough food so that we're not constantly hungry and totally focused on food, and then enough clothing that we're not constantly focused on how do we get warm, um, and then enough housing so we aren't, I'm constantly trying to figure out where can we find a cave so that we won't get wet. And then you move on and up to other much less urgent kind of material needs, desires, and luxuries. As Chicago economist George Stigler said, the most glorious thing about the market economy is that at time passes. Um, what... you know, Were necessities become things that everyone has, and it's so obvious they aren't even mentioned? Um, What were conveniences become necessities that people feel incredibly outraged and dissed if they're deprived of them? What were luxuries become conveniences, and we invent totally new luxuries that people had never before even thought would be within kind of their particular range? Um, For example, the luxury of being able to watch some kind of video entertainment, some kind of bloody, gory, scary, frightening video attainment about witches, say, in your own house um, whenever you want to. If you wanted to do that, you had better be named James Stewart. You had better be king of England and Scotland in 1604, and Shakespeare had better be on your payroll. And even so, you could only do that for the six months that the that Shakespeare's acting company, The King Men, had that in repertory. Um, but if we want to do that um, at any instant, um, we can, and we can do it for, for pennies. For so much, it's no longer regarded the ability to watch Macbeth or the Blair Witch Project in our homes whenever we want to, is something that's we, so obviously part of our... Right, of our lifestyles that we don't even think of it as something that's particularly a convenience we value. It's just part of the background. It's just there. And in some ways, that's an enormous um, amplification of wealth, that even the very poor in our society in relative terms still have powers and capabilities that exceed those of kings in the past. Or you know, Nathan or Nathan Mayer Rothschild, right, dead when he was younger than I am, of an infected abscess in his back. Um, he would have been willing to give his entire um wealth for access to you know, one of the urgent care things where they charge you twenty bucks for lancing it and then slapping some antibiotic into it and putting a bandage on it and then yelling at you for not coming in sooner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so then do you think that we're
0: kind of focusing on the wrong problem? Is it not so much an issue of poverty, but the percentage or the number of people who are destitute or who are suffering? Is that maybe a better way to look at this issue, would you think?
1: Well, there are several problems of varying degrees of urgency. Um, in the world as a whole right now, there is a famine in Nigeria. There is a famine in South Sudan. Uh, People are starving to death because they have no food, because the food can't get there, because of war and politics and Boko Haram and governmental incompetence and governments unwilling to accept the the kind of media hit from saying there's actively a famine in our country, etc., etc. And there are 2.7 billion people who we have not yet managed to give access to you know, to the world economy to lift them out of the dire poverty that almost all of our ancestors lived in for the 10,000 years of the Malthusian Agrarian Age between the discovery of agriculture and, say, 1800. Um, Those are the biggest and most urgent problems that we should be focusing on most, and we're not. But the fact that those are the biggest and urge, most urgent problems, and we're neglecting them, doesn't mean that the unequal income and wealth distribution within the United States is not itself a problem and is not itself some, a problem that's worth working on. Um, to say that this is not the most urgent problem to address is not a reason not to deal with the problems, with the problems at hand, unless you actually are going to take the energy that you would otherwise devote to the problems at hand and actually go and devote them to the most urgent problems. Um, So we want to keep them in perspective, but we also want to not minimize our local problems simply because there are bigger global problems that we're not addressing when there are energy and resources that can't be used to address those global problems but that could be used to address the local ones. Um, And I think that income and wealth inequality in the United States is deranging our politics to a remarkable degree. And it's also meaning that the U.S. economy is performing relatively badly, that we could be producing a lot more human well-being, life opportunity in this society than we are. And we could be doing it relatively easily by simply rolling back our income distribution to what it was in 1980.
0: And, and when you say rolling back our distribution to what it was in, in 1980, do you mean through tax policy or some other means or uh, what exactly? How would we maybe go about doing that in your view?
1: Um, tax policy is a whole lot of it. Um, say breaking up monopolies of all kinds is a whole lot of it. Breaking up oligopolies, um, you know, situations in which people have a considerable lock. Um, on the system for one way or another is a big part of it. Severely reducing NIMBYism in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, Portland, Seattle, Washington, D.C., a few other metropolitan areas where people who have a very good deal are extremely averse to having more people crowd in and building the buildings to house the more people to crowd in as other people try to take advantage of it. you know, that you want to look at the big low hanging fruit. At the moment we spend you know six 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 out of every hundred people working in the United States right now are working in healthcare administration. Yeah. Um, either trying desperately to get insurance companies to pay bills or working for insurance companies, trying to find some reason to keep from paying the bills. And we really could do with one out of a hundred people in healthcare administration. Um, We certainly could do with a bunch more doctors, or if we didn't have a bunch more doctors, we certainly could use having our nurses able to do more things. Um, But a society in which there are more doctors or which doctors faced more competition from what they do for nurses would be one in which doctors were lower paid and the doctors really don't like that. Perhaps the most bizarre thing is that we now spend – that now eight out of every hundred people in the United States work in finance when we had three out of every hundred in the 1950s. And those extra five people working in finance – Our growth isn't faster, our allocation of capital isn't better, our corporate governance, we don't hire better executives or fire bad executives more quickly, and we certainly haven't reduced risks. Um, If anything, we've amplified risks. So we've. The things that produce large amounts of inequality in our society, whether it's in finance, in healthcare, in the fact that our tax system is much less progressive than it is, are things that don't add to our, that, that are things that are negative some activities. Um, they shrink the size of the total pie, and they greatly diminish how much how large a share of that total pie the average person gets. And so they greatly degrade the opportunities and powers of the average person Without producing any other countervailing benefit other than making our rich people who are very well off, you know, have much greater wealth they can deploy. Um, But as they deploy that wealth, it actually adds very little to their satisfaction. Right.
0: You know, you've mentioned growth a few times, and I'd really like to get your take on the whole uh, secular stagnation argument, that view that we're in this extended period of slow economic growth. Uh, you know, I recently read Robert Gordon's The Rise and Fall of yeah. American Growth, and and uh, uh, Mark Levinson, I talked to him about his book, uh, An Extraordinary That's Time. a great
1: book, an absolutely great book, a marvelous book, a wonderful book. I'm trying to write a review of Mark Levinson's book. Um ordinary time book, and I haven't succeeded because the reviews I've been writing seem not good enough to do justice to the book.
0: Well, and and just just for our listeners to, to kind of give them a sense of the argument, right, they, they both believe, Gordon and uh, uh, Levinson believe that the sort of the good times that we got used to from the end of World War II up until the 1970s were, were sort of a happy aberration. And uh, what we call slow growth now is actually normal growth. And, and I'd really like to get your, your view on that.
1: There are really six sets of issues. Um, and the first is our wealth, you know, is our ability to Use our technology, our organization, our skills and resources to manipulate and command nature in such a way as to make molecules get up and dance in order to suit our purposes. Our wealth is increasing at a rate that is phenomenal compared to any previous century. That we're kind of getting the growth in productivity and technology that in the days of the Roman Empire it took you a century to get we're getting that much growth in a year and we're getting that from a much higher base. So our technological and organizational possibilities are growing enormously. And Gordon makes a very big deal about the fact that it's no longer manipulating matter, um, that we're not flying faster or making different kinds of steel and you can only invent the flush toilet once, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But are there other things that are as equally important? Well, perhaps, that once you get out of the everyone is starving to death, wet all the time, and freezing cold, um, there's a sense in which you've done the heavy lifting and everything else is just gravy. But, you know, Hal Varian, Google's chief economist, is having his 70th birthday party in San Francisco today, which I will miss. And Hal Varian would say that what economic growth really is is it's it's forming matter into shapes that are convenient for us and then using that matter plus information and communication to accomplish our purposes and even if we're no longer forging ahead in terms of figuring out how to manipulate matter gross matter to make objects as fast as we were we're certainly getting much 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 better at information processing and communications much much faster And the amount of time we spend on information and communication suggests those are at least as important as matter. Um, So there's this Varian-Gordon argument about is the rate at which our wealth is increasing, um, you know, in which Gordon says, Varian says it's continuing to increase at about the same rate as best we can tell. Gordon says it's definitely slowed. I'm on Varian's side of this. Then there's the utility argument. Are the needs and desires we're satisfying as urgent and important and do they do as much to boost human happiness, well-being, welfare, satisfaction, whatever, as growth did in the age of the second industrial revolution? And there I think Gordon is probably right, that even if our wealth as we measure it is increasing as fast, it's still not as useful to us that the replacement of incandescent light bulbs with, you know, compact fluorescent LED things, um, that's a major, major advance in lighting technology. That's as big an advance in lighting technology as going from whale oil or early gas to incandescent lights. But going from whale oil or early gas lights to incandescent lights was a big deal in terms of human satisfaction. It meant that we could now own the night going from incandescence to whatever we are are going to have next is not that big a deal for human well-being. Then there's a social engineering um, question. Are we actually setting things up so that people can take proper advantage of the technological and organizational powers we have um, to make their lives better, or are they simply constantly being grifted and misled because so much of our technological and organizational powers are devoted to cheating people in one way or another? And there, there are, those are huge problems. Um, the fact that in America today, in 40% of our counties, females have lower life expectancy than they did 25 years ago. Um, indicates that we have social engineering failures and public health failures on an absolutely mammoth scale. Um, You need to talk about that. There's also simply inequality. First, in the sense of how much does inequality mean that the well-being that our economy could accomplish, you know, it isn't accomplishing, last night my wife and i took a gift card that had been given to us by a friend after we did him a kind of fairly large favor he thought it was a big favor we didn't think it was a big favor at all but he was extremely generous in giving us a gift card to a truly superb restaurant and we went out and the two of us spent two hundred dollars on a dinner for two because we can afford it suppose we'd taken that two hundred dollars instead And we divided it into 10 $20 gift cards and given it to kind of 10 single mothers of relatively young children so they could take their children out to McDonald's um, for an extra time. I'm looking back and thinking about my three-year-old. Once looking around as we drove about and turning to a stranger and saying, I have never been to McDonald's. which she hadn't, but that 's because we were yuppies, um right that 's because we were California yuppies, but nevertheless, um, for her, in the social interaction group of three year olds you know going to Mcdonald 's would be attaining the pinnacle of human happiness, and we were somehow depriving us of it you know um yes of course, the other story is that might, one of mine was eight um, and you know, for the first time, I stopped at a seven eleven with him in a car, and he looked around and said, "Wow, a junk food store right? uh, apparently, we'd kept them so we'd set them so close they hadn't realized this stage that there are awful lot of very sharp needs um that are not being filled today, and a system that gives my wife enough access to shall we say, the incredibly good ceviche made at Story Restaurant in Prairie Village, Kansas, Um, as opposed to giving, you know, 23-year-olds a special trip out where they get to eat something that strikes them as really tasty and impressive with a toy and impressive visuals. We're not doing a terribly good job of taking our wealth and powers and using them to create human well-being, and a more equal society in the United States would do a bunch of that, a more equal world. So a world where she didn't have 2.7 billion people still living like her pre-industrial ancestors would do even more, too. Um, so that's inequality. And then there's the question of, is to what extent is inequality um, a zero-sum game? You know, that the old thorstein Veblen conspicuous consumption point of it. Um, That to what extent is the point of being rich, you know, to make yourself feel good because you're making other people feel small? Um, That to what extent is the whole thing driven by an attempt to um, our people using um, enormous technological and organizational capabilities to be spiteful to others in the hopes of creating their envy? Um, In which case, you're certainly no longer in the business of creating human well-being through wealth and technological powers. You're in the business of detracting from it. Um, And those are kind of serious inequality questions. And last, there's the whole set of issues that we need to grapple with and we haven't that are centered around... I center them around Hungarian-Jewish mid-20th century sociologist Karl Polanyi. Um, Danny Roderick does too. Danny Roderick is probably the best person to ask about these things. But um, the point is that people people don't like risks, right? People don't like a world in which their life can all of a sudden fall out from under them and their life can kind of collapse. Um, And so we want to have some kind of social insurance given the world is unstable and uncertain. Um, But people also don't like to be grifted. People like to feel that they're engaged in gift exchange relationships. It's kind of what we do as jumped up East African plains apes. We're engaged in all kinds of gift exchange relationships. But we're desperate. um, We're desperate Not to be the people who are always being grifted, not the people who are always contributing and never getting anything back, right? Not to be the idea that we're paying our taxes and they're going to them, to the them, and the them are not contributing. Um, Of course, we're also not too happy being always the grifters, thinking of ourselves as the grifters. In fact, it's nearly impossible for us to do so. Um, the only way we can do so is by thinking of the others as not fully human. But say, um, say to take a completely random and you know, unimportant hypothetical, um, if you're running DJT Industries in the 1990s and you can sell your stock for $15 a share, um, you don't think I've made a huge botch of my Atlantic City casino operation – if I sell these shares of stocks for $15, I can take $5 to replenish my fortune. And then the $10 of value left to the shareholders will be slowly dribbled away. And the thing when the Trump Taj Mahal will go bankrupt in September 2016, meaning that I will have grifted um, everyone who initially invested out of a third of their money and so rebuilt my fortune. Um, Instead, you think... Well, this is really a great opportunity. The business has gone badly now, but it's going to go so great in the future. It's going to go bigly great. It's going to go so bigly, bigly great that the five dollars of the fifteen I'm going to take as my management fees are a small drag on it, and it will be worth forty, fifty, a hundred dollars a share by twenty sixteen. That I'm giving the investors in DJT the opportunity of their lifetime. And they should be incredibly grateful to me that I am given the opportunity to invest in this. And precisely because um, we are who we are. It's those who can con themselves who are often the very best con artists. And the best they are at conning themselves and being totally unrealistic, um, the better they are as the con artists. And in some sense, the more dangerous to human society they are. Um, but that's a totally irrelevant aside of no interest to anybody for any purpose. Um, but still, we have this grifter-sucker um, dichotomy that we don't like. We have this we really don't like risk, um, big risks to our lives at all. <clears throat> and we also have the fact that we believe in a market economy in which everything happens only if it passes a profitability test. Um, But we also believe that in some sense, communities should stay what they were, what they are. That right now the San Francisco Board of Supervisors are incredibly upset because the Mission neighborhood of San Francisco is changing from being mostly Hispanic to mostly yuppie programmers. And they think this is horrible and want to do something about it. That people think their communities should remain stable... People think their income levels should be what they thought they would be, what are appropriate to people of their training. Um, And people also think that their jobs are in some sense things they deserve to keep as long as they work hard and play by the rules. And the problem is that in a dynamic market economy, that is not so. Things that worked perfectly well last year can and do fail the profitability test this year, in which case the market economy will destroy them. Because while people think they have rights to land, to their community, um, to labor, um, to their income level, and to finance being provided to the firms so their firms can survive, because people think that they have rights to land, labor, and finance, these things are commodities in a market economy. And commodities only pass, only... Commodities dance to follow the profitability test. And so the only rights you really have in a market economy are rights that come out if you happen to own things, if you have property rights, and if those property rights are the things that rich people have a serious Jones for. If rich people don't have a Jones for what you own, your property rights aren't worth much. And if you don't have property rights at all, then you have absolutely no control. You are the plaything of alien sinister forces um, beyond your knowledge. And that is the problem is that a market economy is amazingly productive and increasingly productive over the time. But we have all these grifter sucker need for insurance things and we have all these stable communities, income levels, um, right, occupations, expectations which strongly conflict with our desire to have a dynamic, growing, increasing, prosperous market economy. And we have not figured out how to square these many circles at all. And so as a result, we are immensely vulnerable to grifters who promise that they will bigly solve all of our problems, especially when they will bigly solve all of our problems because... They're really caused by other people outside who are not fully human in some sense. So that's Gordon. That's Gordon in a nut that's the nine books Gordon should have written instead of the one he wrote in a nutshell.
0: Do you think that in a sense it's that as the economy as a market becomes more dynamic, it's just harder and harder for people to sort of to, to keep up with it? Um Or is that too simplistic?
1: Is the pace of change faster um Are things drying up and blowing away faster? right It was in eighteen forty eight that Karl Marx wrote that you know, capitalism and industrial technology you know were destroying everything that was thought of as fixed and established in sociology in society. That the way it's usually translated is that all that is solid melts into air. And that's not quite um, that the proper translation is that you have these established orders and expectations and practices and aristocracies and guilds and so forth, and steam pressure blows them away. They are steamed away. You know, they looked solid, they looked established, they'd been around for centuries. The steam touches them and they evaporate, right? Um, Marx wrote that in 1848, and um, he thought he was at the peak of the process. Um, We think there has been significant acceleration of the process from between, say, the Industrial Revolution age of 1800 to 1870. Um, and then the second industrial revolution age that started in 1870. Um, and we yeah. argue about you know, how much is life being differently transformed in our now our third industrial revolution kind of infotech age. Has um, the pace of change slowed down, as Gordon thinks? Is it speeding up, as the Silicon Valley people think? Um Certainly, there is a strong sense that you know, from 1950 to 1995 or so, that things were that we'd managed to reach a situation in which we're able, more or less to manage the changes, and that since 1995, we've kind of lost our ability to manage the changes, at least in a way that seems to make people think that they ought to be happy with the way the world works.
0: And so with that, we will we will close. And Professor DeLong, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really right. appreciate it. Um,
1: you're welcome. You're welcome.
0: Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at PoliticsGuys. We'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. Sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website. And if you enjoy the show, you should check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.